Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein A Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein A Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein A Gogo. You are listening to 3 R. I'm Dr. Shane. We have an hour of science for you now, and it is going to be a huge show. Uh, on the line with me is Dr. Jen. Good morning, Dr. Jen. How are you going? Good morning, Dr. Shane. I am so, so well because today's show is going to be awesome. Yeah, we're going to have a good time. There was a little bit of a kerfuffle with some of the regular team members, folks. So Jen and I have kicked them out and we brought four of Jen's science communication students from the University of Melbourne in to do the show, which we do each year, which is going to be pretty exciting. Allow me to introduce them to you. We have Stephanie. Good morning, Steph. Good morning. The sun is shining. I'm so excited to be here, Dr. Shane. Where the hell are you? It's raining where I was. <laughs> we have Wayne. Good morning, Wayne. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Thank you so much for having us. Oh, look, it's great to have you. Got You guys have been working real hard on this show for today, so I think people are going to be very impressed with what we've got to offer. Leela, good morning. Good morning. Happy, happy to be in the virtual studio. Yeah, you guys all look great in your um, various angles of the studio that I've sent you. It looks like, it, folks, you can't see this, but if you could, if you get on Twitter, I think uh, you'll be able to see it. Each one of them is sitting in a slightly different position in the studio as a result of some happy snaps I, I took earlier. So it kind of looks pretty cool. And good morning, Kat. Good morning, Dr. Shane. I've just had my coffee. I'm ready to go. I just realized your photo, you're sitting basically exactly where I'm sitting right now, which is a little bit uh, <laughs> unnerving. A little bit unnerving. Now, folks, we're going to start off with some news, and then the team today is going to present a range of different scientific stories, which are just fascinating, and they're coming up a little bit later. But we're going to start with some news. And first up, Kat, I think you are first on my list. So what's been happening in the week of science? Um. Thanks, Dr. Shane. So if you guys are anything like me, you're desperate to go travelling overseas again. Um, I know for me at the top of my list is Norway because I really want to go see the Northern Lights. Mm. Um, But unfortunately, I don't think that's going to be happening anytime in the near immediate future. But I thought I'd share with you guys the next best thing. Um, And that's that scientists recently were looking out in space and they noticed a comet with an aurora that was similar to that of the Northern Lights. Um, Now, I should probably preface that this aurora we can't just see with our eyes and it's because the light surrounding this comet is um, really high in energy. But um, scientists are able to um, convert this light um, using like telescopes and computers to see it. I looked at a video of it and it looks crazy. It's just like this big glowing rock. Um, And apart from just, you know, looking good, it's really exciting because it's the first time that an object in space other than a planet or a moon has this kind of aurora of this kind of energy, which is in the far ultraviolet region of energy. Um, And this is super useful because basically how this aurora is generated is that um, electrons from the sun interact with an envelope of gas that surrounds the comet. um, And that reaction gives off this light. So having this light the first time in this kind of energy shows us that, hey, there's this new kind of um, chemistry out in space going on. So it can give us tons of information about, you know, what actually is going on out in space. Yeah, look, it's fascinating. And comets are just awesome. Every time uh, we see one, we, we learn more and more. And unfortunately, they're not around for very long, so we don't get to 
you know, do a real lot of studies. Although I think I've been waiting for Haley to come back. I think I have to live to about 110 to see it again, but it'll be back eventually. I think, was it 76 years or something or other? That's really cool stuff, Kat. Thanks for that. Uh, Leela, you're up next. What do you got? Hello. So I know we're all really disappointed about the Summer Olympics being postponed this year, and I'm trying very hard not to sound sarcastic, um, but I found some news <laughs> that has gotten <laughs> me pretty excited about what the distant future of the Winter Olympics might look like. So hopefully the IOC is listening because a team from Korea University uh, published in Science Robotics this week and they built a robot named Curly, which, no points for guessing correctly, has mastered the art of curling. Oh, yes. <laughs> My absolute so, favourite Winter Olympic sport, curling. Yeah. Now, artificial, artificial intelligence still has a long way to go uh, when it comes to bridging the gap between simulation and reality, especially when there's changing conditions involved. So outside the lab, some unexpected factors are going to be happening in the real world and they can definitely have an effect on the performance of the AI systems. But that's what makes curling a really useful test scenario for machine learning because even though the surface of the ice looks pretty flat, it's actually somewhat rough and changing all the time. For example, even the throw of each curling stone for every turn uh, also affects the shape and the texture of the ice as well. So Curly had to adjust to all of these throws and these different changing conditions to account for um, the, the new conditions, and it's in what they've called an adaptive deep reinforcement learning framework. Basically, he's just applying some trial and error in real time to the algorithms that he already has. So the robot only needed a short amount of time to warm up, and then eventually he won three out of the four games, beating out two human elite South Korean national curling teams in the trials. Wow. So, yeah, I think it's a decent win for artificial intelligence and machine learning. And I don't think we're going to see him in Beijing in 2022, but some curlers should definitely be sweating at the moment. Yeah. So, uh, we should probably say for all the Australians out there who aren't, uh, you know, really connected to curling as a sport, essentially you throw what I, I consider to be a giant sort of hockey puck with a handle on top of it. Uh, down what looks like a frozen bowling alley and then someone or a couple of people with brooms just go absolutely apeshit trying to uh, sweep in front of it and get it to change direction and speed. It is uh, quite technical and I can imagine getting a robot to master all that would be pretty intense. But uh, it is an interesting sport to watch and I say that with every bit of sarcasm I can muster. Uh, Now, next, we've got Wayne. What have you got for us? Uh, thanks, Dr. Shane. So uh, my biggest fear is spiders. If I see one in the corner of my room, I will just freak out. But even for someone like me, I should appreciate all the good that can come out from studying this animal. And so what some a team of scientists from the University of Queensland have found that the venom from the Venezuela pinkfoot goliath tarantula, what a name, and of course it had to be one of the biggest spiders in the world and the venom from the spider can relieve pain from people with irritable bowel syndrome also known as IBS. So what IBS is it's a disorder where some people after eating a meal they become very bloated and they start having these pain in their stomach and in their gut and so so this is because when they become bloated their intestines start to stretch and it starts irritating the nerves around the gut. And when these nerves are very sensitive and when irritated, it would start sending pain signals to the brain like there's no tomorrow. So we can only imagine how much pain these people are experiencing. And so scientists wanted to find a new way to try and help relieve them. 
And but the thing is, right now the current painkillers out there, they're not strong enough to help treat it. So, so of course, what they do is they grab spider venom and uh, try and find new ways to relieve the pain. And so what they've done is they found two proteins called TAP1A and TAP2A, and um, that might help inhibit this pain. And so the way they work is that uh, they inhibit ion channels in the nerves from opening. And by inhibiting that, these nerves can no longer send the pain signal to the brain. And so people with IBS won't feel this pain anymore. Hmm. So yeah, it's just a great way to see that we can get something good out of spiders for once. Yeah, I love. I also love whenever you get to use the term milking spiders. I think because um, I'm arachnophobic as well, so the idea of milking a spider is terrifying to me. Um, the the what was the name of the spider? The Venezuela pinkfoot Goliath tarantula. I See, literally read yeah. that kind of hard. See, the word Goliath. <laughs> Really shouldn't appear next to the word spider in my view. That that is just sick. Um, <laughs> I get scared. I'm looking around the studio right now, just making sure there's nothing creepy crawly. Um, but gee, they are amazing. It, it's fascinating how much we can get out of the natural world, especially in terms of things like anesthetics and painkillers. And you just reminded me there, Wayne, of a um, a story I read a couple of years ago about uh, some. I think it was like a fish that had a fisherous, actually it might have been a snail, that had a type of anaesthetic that could, um, you know, essentially knock out a fish within like one-tenth of the speed of our fastest anaesthetics in, um, you know, that we use uh, because, of course, it's in high pressure, low temperature, everything has to work really fast and a fish moves pretty quick. So you've got to immobilize it really quickly. And yeah, these sorts yeah. of things, yeah, these sorts of things are just amazing. So that's fascinating. I love, yeah, I love the spider work. Um, I love the fact I'm not doing this by the work, but I love the fact that it's being, being done. It's really interesting. Yeah. All right. Last but not least with some news, Steph, what do you got for us? Thanks, Dr. Shane. So normally we like to avoid talking about um, COVID-19 on Einstein and GoGo, but this week I got an email in my inbox that was too cool not to talk about. Uh, so scientists at Fundan University in Shanghai in China have developed a potential screening method for COVID-19 using eye images that are analysed with um, artificial intelligence. How cool is that? Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's a huge, huge opportunity because we know the current methods for diagnosing coronavirus are sort of between a CT of your lung or the fabled no nasal, uh, nasal test. And these methods obviously take time, effort and discomfort in the case of the nasal swab from what I've heard. Uh, so this would be a huge step up in terms of the speed that we can diagnose and the cost and general efficiency of the process. And they've been testing it and so far have found it has a more than 90% success rate at diagnosis. And the scientists say that their model can check results in less than one second. Whoa. How crazy is that? So, so far, they've tested it on more than 400 people, which was a mix of healthy people, people diagnosed with COVID-19, people with lung issues and those with eye issues as well. And they used 80% of those people initially to train the machine learning algorithm. And then the remaining 20% were tested to actually test the um, effectiveness of this algorithm that they developed. And that's where they found that it was more than 90% effective in diagnosing coronavirus. 
I think it's really amazing. And especially because I like to picture us um, going to the airport. I mean, we're already um, going to the airport and using photo recognition for our passport, right? So how cool would it be if while they're taking our photo for our passport, they're also testing us for coronavirus? I mean, does mm. this mean we get to go to Europe sooner than we thought? I hope so. Yeah, but be very a big cool. caution given it is very preliminary and needs much more testing before we can get our hopes too high. Yeah, I mean, even if you could um, adapt that so it could be used with everyone's smartphones, that would be, um, you know, that next step of self-diagnosis. You know, just have an app where you basically just test yourself. I mean, there's a there's some really interesting machine learning stuff that's been done over the last few years with regards to skin lesions and skin anomalies and looking at how effectively you can use an AI system to diagnose any potential skin problems. And, you know, this this is fascinating stuff. I mean, we, we no longer... You know, have to take an old SLR and spend two weeks getting things, you know, developed. You know, we all have cameras on our phones that are incredibly sophisticated compared to what we had, you know, even just 10 years ago. So we've all got, you know, beautiful little scientific instruments. A uh, quick quick point, Steph, on the um, the nasal test uh, here in Melbourne. I, I want a public service announcement to everyone out there because I had it done. And uh, the lady who did it to me was fantastic because she said two things that were really important. She said, this will be very brief, but it will be somewhat unpleasant. And that was a really good message to me because it wasn't the best, but it didn't last very long at all. Like she was really quick with it. And I, I found it okay. Some people, you know, some people have different reactions, but um, I found it okay. And the best part for me was I had my test results within about 14 hours, which I know there's been a lot of talk about, you know, five to seven days. And it was that way for a while, I think, but I suspect now it's a lot faster. So I got mine in 14 hours, text message, all clear. It was great. So the process was a lot better than I think what a lot of people have experienced early on. Yeah. Well, team, thank you very much for all that news. Um, had they go, Jen? Should we keep them? Yeah, I, I reckon we should probably keep them for another, you know, what, 45 minutes and see how they go? What do you yep. think? Yep, that'll do. All right, folks, we're going to take a break for some music and we will be back in a few minutes with some amazing science stories for you. And, uh, yeah, our team today is a group of students from the University of Melbourne that Dr. Jen and others have been training in science communication. They're pretty amazing and they've been doing a good job so far, so we're going to keep them on. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Yeah, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 Triple R. We have a great group of people doing the show with me today, all of Dr. Jen's University of Melbourne science communication students. They are kicking some butt. And first up to do some serious science storytelling for us is Kat. What have you got for us, Kat? I think you're going to – something about rabies? Yeah, yeah, a bit about rabies. Do tell. Um, so when I was younger, I loved watching Scooby-Doo, you know, playing detective and solving some mysteries. Um, and I honestly think that's why I got into and love science so much. You know, we can use all this different kind of information, piece it together to kind of unlock a puzzle to, you know, what's going on in the world. Um, so today I want to talk to you guys about a scientific detective story that spanned over 20 years. Um and I want to show you guys how scientists were able to, you know, put on their detective caps and they found a link between rabies and an anti-inflammatory drug you guys might know as Voltaren. Mm. Um, so if we track back 25 years or so into rural India, um, scientists over there were noticing that their vulture population was just declining and declining. Um, and I don't mean just a few birds here and there were dying. 
um, within 10 years, um, 95% of the vulture population had died. So this was huge. This was a near mass extinction event. Um, and I know some people might be thinking like, yeah, this is bad, but, you know, is it that bad? Like, you know, vultures, they're kind of ugly birds, I'll say it. And, you know, they're a bit, they can be a bit morbid if you think about because they are carry-on eaters. So what that means is their food source are the carcasses of dead animals. Um, but mm. these vultures specifically in India, they eat cow carcasses or cattle carcasses. Um, but these vultures are actually the vital cleanup teams of the animal kingdom. And the way that they eat these carcasses is super quick and efficient. So it helps them stop any spread of bacteria or disease um, in the first place. So they are pretty important in the kind of ecosystem. Um, so this scientists were noticing that these vultures were dying off. And, you know, the scientists were just like, what on earth is going on? They tried to think, was there a poacher? And there was nothing like that causing them to die. They were thinking, oh, maybe there's a new predator. And they looked and nothing seemed to be killing these birds. They had enough food. They had enough water. They seemed to just be, like, falling out of the sky. Hmm. Um yeah, so they're that's a bit a, stumped. That's a big. That's a big bird to fall out of the sky too. You don't want to be underneath that, yeah. <laughs> right? That's yeah. a big bird. A vulture's a big bird. I've always had the impression yeah. with them too that they kind of know when you're close to, you know, falling off your tree. You know, if they're circling okay. while you're walking through the field, that's bad yeah. news. I've seen that in the yeah. movies. I've seen that in the movies. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, so the vul- the scientists are thinking like, if these vultures are dying, then you know, they're not going to be here to eat these cow carcasses. And this is a huge food source. Obviously, it's not just going to go to waste. So the vultures weren't eating it. Someone else was. And this turned out to be the pariah or feral dogs. So these dogs now had this huge food source because the vultures were dead. They weren't there eating it. So as you can imagine, these dog populations were just rocketing and rocketing. Um, And by 2008, it was estimated that five and a half million new feral dogs were born because these vultures were dying. Wow. Um, and I wish this was a good thing. You know, I love dogs. I'd love there to be more dogs in the world. But like I said before, these dogs are feral um, and they're notorious for spreading diseases. And one disease they're really good in a bad way of spreading is rabies. So because these dogs, you know, skyrocketed in numbers, they were interacting more and more with humans, especially in rural areas of India, Um, more humans were contracting rabies and it resulted in nearly 50,000 human deaths by rabies. Whoa. That's a lot. Yeah. Yeah, it was huge. So obviously then the scientists were like, okay, like this is getting really, really bad. We really need to figure out, you know, what is going on. So they decided to look at, you know, at the actual carcasses of the cows that the vultures were not eating because they were dying um, and that the dogs then were eating. Um, now, I should probably mention that in India, cows are used a lot for farming, um, but they're not typically eaten in accordance with Hindu culture. So the cows, they do their farm work and then, you know, they're left to die. The vultures eat them. The circle of life continues. And during their farming, um, cows can get aches and pains just like we can, um, sore joints and things like that, and they can develop arthritis. So farmers try to look after their cows by treating them with an anti-inflammatory drug called diclofenac. And this turns out to be the active ingredient 
in the pain-relieving medication we humans call Voltaren. So what scientists found was that this drug, completely fine to use for cows, completely fine on humans, but it's actually toxic to vultures. And this is because vultures have a different kind of kidney system. So when the vultures were eating the carcasses of cows that had been treated with this diclofenac, they got poisoned essentially and died. So ultimately, these well-meaning farmers, they treated their cows with the diclofenac to help their arthritis. This essentially poisoned the vultures. This increased the population of feral dogs. This increased the rate of rabies transmission to humans and increased the rate of human deaths by rabies. So, I mean, hindsight's a beautiful thing. You know, we can look back and see this cascade of events. But, you know, it took 20 years to figure out this kind of scientific detective story. It's fantastic. It's just crazy. Thank, thank goodness for those meddling kids. There's <laughs> <laughs> the Scooby-Doo joke, people. Um, I was brought up on Scooby-Doo. About 70% of my scientific knowledge comes from Scooby-Doo. But this, this that and the Octonauts. Um, I mean, this is one of those things where, like, the connectivity is so incredible. And I know um, Dr. Jan and Dr. Ewan over the years, we've been talking a lot about the reintroduction of um, apex predators into Yosemite and places like that and all those connectivities and what's happening and whether or not it's real. And, you know, there's been a lot of back and forth on the science. But this is one that I hadn't heard before. And the idea of these these vultures being like the idea that it's actually just something as simple as the active ingredient in Voltaren that's killing them. Is there a so so what's the plan now? I mean, presumably there is a massive number of dogs there that um still have to be dealt with. Um and I can imagine the vulture population, once you remove the contaminant, will bounce back pretty quickly. Is that uh, have they started that process or Yeah, yeah, definitely. So this all these kind of results kind of came out close to kind of 2008. So since then, the government's been like, you know, diclofenac, we can't, that's, you can't use that for mm. vet practices. So they've actually got a new drug instead. They, they call meloxicam. So that does the same thing, but it's not toxic to vultures. Um, and the thing they're hoping, you know, if you bring back this vulture population, they can scare off these dogs. So they're yep. kind of, you know, if they're there eating the food, the dogs aren't going to get anywhere near it. Um, so hopefully, you know, just restoring that kind of ecosystem will help. Yep. Uh, very good stuff, Kat. I love this story. It's a, it's a real um, solid piece of scientific uh, investigation, as you say, the sort of Sherlock Holmes elements of science that uh, we all grew up loving and I think got a lot of us into science in the, in the first place. Um, thanks so much, Kat. Good stuff. No worries. Next up is Wayne. Do tell, Wayne, you've got uh, some stuff going on with regards to camouflage. Yeah, so um, when I hear the word camouflage, the first thing I think of is like an animal changing colors to bend, to blend into their background to hide from predators or prey. And so my favorite example of animal that does this is like an octopus changing its color to blend into the ocean's floor or just a plain rock. But animals have this whole other form of camouflage that I didn't even know about until recently and thought this would be a great chance to share my newfound knowledge. And so this other form of camouflage is called smell camouflage. And it's where animals rely on what they smell like to hide from predators or prey. And so this is still a very new area of research. And it's quite hard for scientists to find animals that can camouflage themselves through smell. Because it's like, it's not like we can pick up a snake or something, smell it, and have like say something like, oh, it doesn't smell like anything. It must be camouflaging its smell. We, we can't do that. We don't have that many 
smell receptors in our nose to make that judgment accurately. Uh, despite all this, though, scientists still have noticed this phenomenon occurring in the wild. And so I'm here to tell you some of the interesting animals that can, do th that can use this technique to their advantage in different ways. And so the first animal that I thought was uh, so interesting to learn about was the orange-spotted harlequin fowlfish. And this animal has evolved so well that it not only camouflages itself through smell, it can also camouflage itself uh, through sight. But I'm just going to focus on the smell side of it. So this animal, this fowlfish, the, their main source of food is Acropora coral, and it's a specific type of coral. And they also live, this is also their main habitat, so they are pretty much eating their home. But once they eat it, they start smelling like it. And so the way that scientists proved this was that they collected a bunch of crabs that also live in these acropora corals, and they found that these crabs could not tell the difference between the smell of a foul fish that has eaten acropora coral or the coral itself. But as soon as they gave the foul fish a different type of coral to eat, the crab could straight away tell the difference between the two. And so once they proved that they were indeed camouflaging themselves through the smell, they wanted to see if this, is, this held true in like a predatorial sense. So they captured a bunch of the filefish's main predator, which is cod, and pretty much did the same experiment. And again, they found that the cod cannot tell the difference between the smell of a filefish that has eaten coral, um, acropora coral, or the coral itself. And so, yeah, this is just an amazing example of how the fish has evolved to rely on what they smell like uh, to to blend into the background and to avoid their prey. Yeah. Wow. And, it's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And I so, think there's so, a fantastic skit there for SpongeBob somewhere in the mix. <laughs> yeah, to be honest, I wasn't never really a SpongeBob fan, unfortunately, so I couldn't fit something in there about that. <laughs> but yeah, so that was, a, that was an example of like a chemical camouflage, right? So this next animal is that I'm going to give about, has cam uses camouflage in a completely different way. So it's called the California ground squirrel. And their main predator is a rattlesnake. And as we all know, rattlesnakes uses uh, shed their skin. And so the ground squirrel have developed this, uh, this, um, this role where they, they grab the dead skin, they chew it up, and then they slather it all over their body. And so when, yeah, disgusting, right? But to them, this is natural. Um, so when, when scientists first uh, discovered this, like all discoveries, they were baffled by it. They had no idea why they were doing this. They thought it might have been some reason along the lines of uh, the squirrels did this to show them who the alpha one is. But then they started realizing that the, the parent squirrels started slathering it all over their babies as well. And mm. so they were like, why are they doing this? And that's when they realized that they must be camouflaging their smell to hide away from uh, rattlesnakes. And so uh, for snake lovers out there, you might think that oh, snakes are, are could be attracted to their own kind of their own smell, like from their own species, and which is true. But when a when a squirrel is uh, has a snake smell, and compared to a, like a squirrel by itself, the snake will more more likely to go into a burrow with just a squirrel than a squirrel with the snake scent. It's fantastic. Yeah. I, I think you'd know the, the alpha squirrels are the ones that wear the snake skin kind of like a sash. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, or a bandana, you know, like, yeah, you know, that would be the sort of sash, you know, that, that sort of like, says, like, I like killed that snake and now I'm wearing its skin. 
yeah, exactly. I mean, that, that's also another way they could probably defend themselves. Just go up to like, say, I killed one of your buddies. Yeah. Like, look how strong <laughs> yeah. Don't come near me. Yeah, here's your cousin, <laughs> and I'm wearing him as a sash now. That happened last week, and it could happen to you. Yeah, that's uh, look, it's fascinating stuff, Wayne. I think there's so much in that. One of the things um, I always found fascinating was um, the hammerhead shark, you know, when you're talking about the fish and smells, because the nostrils on the hammerhead shark are very far apart because of the yeah. hammerhead shape. And that's so that it can, as it moves its head left to right, it can triangulate where a smell or a scent is coming from in the water and hence get to its prey faster as a result of that absolutely weird evolutionary adaptation, which I, I find just fascinating. So smells are obviously a pretty big deal out there in the, um, you know, in the animal kingdom. And you know, we see all sorts of visual ones. As you said, there's heaps of other camouflage type, you know, butterflies, wings, whatever it might be that, that help um, change the perception in the predator-prey relationships. But smells something that we don't, you know, we can't pick it up. So, you know, exactly. And, yeah. And it's us humans spend a lot of time camouflaging our smell. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting because the scientists actually think that there might be more smell camouflage out there than visual camouflage. We just we just can't we can't, can't see, see it. it. Yeah, smell it. Yeah, it was, apart from like, unless there's like a stroke of luck and that we discover that animal doing that, like so like the fowlfish, they they must have just stumbled it by like by luck. And yeah. Oh, look, it's. Any way they can find it. It's absolutely fascinating stuff. I mean, I have to say, you know, I did my my degree in physics, but when I hear about this stuff, I think, my goodness, there's so much that we don't know that's super interesting, and really, um, just looking at the complexity of some of these smells, like just how complex they can be, and how much you can, you know, really change your environment, and and how how a predator tracks you down based on that is is phenomenal. Thanks so much, Wayne. That was really good. Thank you. All right, folks, we're going to take a break for some uh, music. Uh, we'll be back in just a few minutes with some more science for you. And, uh, yeah, there's a lot coming up. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Now, we are going through an absolute bucket load of science. Uh, today, we have Gen Science Communication uh, students in from the University of Melbourne. Two of them have already delivered some spectacular science for us. And up next is Leela. And uh, Leela, I understand you're talking about that ever so happy topic of mass extinctions. Hang on. Uh, well, I'm, yeah, yeah I'll just go ahead. Um, I'm loving the nostalgia train that's been happening on the show so far. So I'm going to keep writing it and I'm going to take you back to the land before time. So usually when we think about mass extinctions, it's usually dinosaurs and meteors that come to mind. But there's actually been a total of five mass extinctions that we've identified and the causes of each of them are still pretty highly up for debate to this day. And so the one that killed the dinosaurs, is it's the one that, was, that happened most recently and it was about 65 to 66 million years ago. So the theory of the giant asteroid the size of a mountain hitting a Mexican peninsula is probably the most well-known explanation for an extinction event that we have at all. But I'm going to take you back even further than that to about 359 million years ago to a period of time we call the Devonian period. Hmm. Leela, just just to be just yeah. three fifty nine, not three sixty. You just you're right on the money there at three hundred and fifty nine million years ago. It's a really yes, specific I'm number. Try to be precise. Yeah. Yes. Wow. <laughs> it just I, look. I can't wait to hear this because it amazes me that we can be that specific about it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, um, 
sorry, 359 million years ago, the world, you would imagine, looked pretty different. And I'm just going to paint you a really brief picture of what it might have looked like back then. So this age of the Earth, um, a lot of the time is called the age of fish because it's when the really early versions of modern-day sharks and bony fish were really beginning to thrive and take shape. And it wasn't just the species that roamed or swam the Earth that looked really different. It was also the shapes and the placements of the land masses, like the configuration of continents that existed back then were really different. Uh, we, re we refer to them now as Euro-America and Gondwana. And it was also a really good time for plant evolution because the Earth's first forests really started to appear at this time as well. And now the late Devonian mass extinction, uh, it's still one of the ones that are really highly contested. And um, we mostly believe that there, it wasn't a single event that caused it. It was uh, actually probably at least two longer episodes of uh, biodiversity loss and maybe some a few shorter ones as well. And by the end of the Devonian, up to 75% of the species on Earth just went extinct, they disappeared, you know, goodbye. So a team from the University of Illinois believe that they've got a pretty good case for uh, a supernova or multiple supernovae being the potential cause of what's known as the Hangenberg event, uh, which marked the end of the end Devonian mass extinction. And so after looking at some fossils from the Devonian period, they found some spores that looked really damaged, like they'd been destroyed by some really intense radiation like you'd get from the sun's UV rays. And this could be explained by some really severe damage to the ozone layer, the same one that we've been destroying ourselves with our greenhouse gas emissions and causing global warming. And so the damage to the ozone layer would have then taken away the ability of the life forms on Earth to be able to protect themselves from the sun, which explains the damage that, that they found on the spores uh, in the fossils. So the question from there that follows is what could have caused the damage to the ozone layer? And at first, scientists were having some difficulty, like linking the extent of damage to the ozone layer to the types of disasters that we would usually think of that occur on Earth. Um, they were thinking maybe in a, a volcanic eruption or some other episode of global warming to be to blame. But uh, this is one of the first times that an astrophysical source, such as the nearby death of a star, otherwise known as a supernova, uh, has been proposed to be what caused the release of radiation that was eventually strong enough to destroy the Earth's ozone layer and cause a mass extinction. Hmm. And just to put it in perspective, the brightest phase of a supernova can emit as much energy in just one day that it takes the sun to do in three million years. So that's a pretty bad sunburn, to say the least. And uh, the nearby supernova theory would be consistent with the amount of radiation needed to damage the ozone layer for such a prolonged period of time as well. Uh, because what remains after a supernova, what we call nebulae, uh, they can exist in the sky for up to 100,000 years, even after the in initial explosion happens. So with this radiation hanging around long enough and close enough to the Earth, it could definitely stand up to being the cause of a mass extinction. Mm. And, yeah, um, there's what? some more evidence as well that might support this theory. It's It's not uncommon for supernovae to occur in clusters they kind of set each other off in a bit of a domino effect and this tendency would support multiple supernovae even more because before the final Hangenberg event there's evidence that biodiversity was already declining um, on earth for about 300,000 years 
prior to um, hmm. the final mass extinction. Yeah. Yeah. It's certainly, At the moment, yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's certainly one of those things where we, we forget, actually, because there haven't been any of these sorts of astronomical events in our very close proximity in, you know, human times. And, you know, that's a relatively short period of, um, of history. Yeah. So, we, you know, we, we see supernova every now and then outside of our you know, own galaxy or, you know, um, you know, but not close to us. And they are pretty spectacular events, no doubt. So... I like, yeah, I like it. Yeah, the sorts of timelines that this stuff happens on is pretty mind-boggling. It's hard to imagine for us because, yeah, like you said, we've been here for such a short amount of time. Um, but at mm. the moment, this theory, it's its mostly just a theory. Um, they'd need other evidence to kind of prove uh, that this is what actually caused the mass extinction. So they'd need to look for radioactive isotopes yep. like plutonium-244 and samarium-146 in Devonian fossil samples. And that would be some pretty compelling evidence that this uh, actually happened. Um, but, yeah, like what I've told, like, what, like you said, what I've told you shouldn't really worry you uh, too much because the closest supernova threat to us is Betelgeuse, and that's about 600 uh, light years away. And the kill distance for a supernova is is only about 25. So we're good. Um, so we're good. We're probably, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're good. And the other thing um, is, like, if it's happened, it's already happened. It's, you yeah. know, nothing you can do about it. It's already gone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> These things take a while. Um, yeah. Uh, in- really interesting stuff, Leela. I, I, I haven't heard, uh, I think when we were talking about this story earlier in the week, the idea of, you know, we, we hear all these astronomical options for mass extinctions like, um, you know, asteroids and so forth hitting hitting the Earth or, you know, meteorites hitting the Earth. But we, we don't think about other stars as a possible source. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a whole other things that comes from our, from our own star but um, that are problematic in many ways. But other stars we kind of haven't really talked about a lot. So that, that's a fascinating piece of work that they're doing, really interesting. Thank you so much. Great Thank stuff. Thank you. And last but not least, Steph, what have you got for us? Oh, you hang on. Let me see. You did send me that you were going to be talking a little bit about evolution. Absolutely. Thanks, Dr. Shane. Uh, so, yeah, a great story to follow up from um, Leela talking about dinosaurs. Um, I want to focus on humans, though. When I was growing up, my parents used to call me a uh, fish out of water because they could hardly drag me out of the pool back onto land. So for today, I want to tell a story about Uh, people's connection with water and a hot debate that has been raging in the world of human evolution for several decades now. So to start this story, we're going to go back to the year 1960. Marine biologist uh, Sir Alistair Hardy puts out an article in The New Scientist proposing a crazy new theory for human evolution. So what we understand about human evolution is that our oldest Uh, human ancestors in the African savannah around two to six million years ago, and they gradually spread across the globe, traveling by land. Well, Hardy comes along and he's like, whoa, hey now, what if we actually spent a lot more time around aquatic environments than we believed? What if we spent our time looking for food resources in inland lakes and coastal environments and that influenced our evolution and the features that we have as humans? And he put forward a whole list of different uh, features that might be uh, a sign of this, such as the fact that we can control our breath, uh, that we have subcutaneous fat, which is fat just under our skin, and that's really common in other aquatic or semi-aquatic animals. Uh, the fact that we don't have much hair, and even that we walk on two legs. 
Hardy was like, well, what if we walk on two legs because we were wading into deeper and deeper water to search for food? And he even suggested maybe this is why people like me get called a fish out of water because we're so innately connected to our aquatic environment. I'm not sure that's exactly what that means, Steph. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But he concluded by saying this is all speculation and we need much more testing and evidence. Uh, You know, it's it's really just a crazy theory. I mean, he'd been thinking about it for several decades at this point before he put Hmm. out his article, but, you know, not much, not much to go on yet. And at the time, it didn't really get much attention. It was sort of cast aside. Um, And then it wasn't until a little later, in 1967, zoologist Desmond Morris put out a book called The Naked Ape, which is a really popular book about human evolution. And he talks about this theory that Hardy had, and he calls it interesting but ultimately lacking solid support. But what he also does is give it a name He calls it the aquatic ape theory and thus the debate and the uh, quite emotional response from the paleoanthropologists starts to emerge. People are saying, this is ridiculous. This is crazy. We weren't aquatic. What are you talking about? None of this makes any sense. But it was gaining a lot more attention. In the 1970s, a new character comes into our story, screenwriter Elaine Morgan. So what is screenwriter doing? Well, she... She thinks that this is really cool and decides to make a film all about the aquatic ape theory. But no surprise, it doesn't really gain much traction in the academic world. Ha. Huh. Like, and then decides she'll switch pros and starts writing books. So between 18, uh, 1986 and I think 2005, she publishes a series of six books all about the aquatic ape theory, trying to compel readers as to why this might be true. But this whole time, despite all this growing attention, scientists, paleoanthropologists still remain extremely skeptical over the idea. Meanwhile, in 1992, an ear, nose and throat specialist comes forward with a paper and he ta- he's talking about a phenomenon known as surfer's ear. So I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with surfer's ear, but it's a, it's a well-recognized um, thing that happens to you know, surfers and divers, people that spend a lot of time underwater, where they actually grow a bone in their outer ear canal. So we're not born with this, but we grow this bone, and it's proposed that that is um, an evolutionary trait to help us uh, adapt to spending significant amount of time underwater, so surfing or diving, and that it narrows the ear canal to protect our fragile eardrum. Anyway, what what um, Dr. Peter Reese Evans says is, what if we can find this pre- the presence of this bone in our early human fossils? Wouldn't that finally be some decent proof or some decent evidence this, that this theory has some legs to it? So in the last 20 or so years, that's what scientists have been doing. They've been going back and looking at fossil records to see if we can find this exostosis, which is that bone present in the outer ear canal. And they have. They've found it even in early human fossils as much as one to two million years ago. And in Neanderthals, who lived around 400,000 to 40,000 years ago, the occurrence is, is around half of the specimens that have been studied. So really, really present. And it's finally giving some credible evidence, I guess, to this idea, enough so that in 2016, the big guns really come into the story. And so David Attenborough decides that this theory is interesting enough to put out an entire series on the BBC. 
but he renames it something a little more sensitive away from the aquatic ape theory and instead refers to it as the waterside ape. And, and in, in doing so, sort of rebrands this theory as not being, you know, an aquatic ape where you might picture us like living underwater, which just seems a bit ridiculous, but rather that we lived alongside our aquatic environments and may have spent a lot of time in those environments, um, diving for food. I mean, we can see it even in Indigenous populations um, here in Australia, um, women on the uh, south coast of Australia go diving for abalone as one of the, um, as a major food source. And they have uh, high, much higher rates of these exostoses in their ears. Yeah. It, it, so this is something that, um, what, I mean, what is the advantage of having that in the ear in terms of, uh, you know, surfing versus sort of free diving are very different things. And I suspect, I, I wonder if there's some sort of tracking between people who are really good at surfing who stay on the board longer and how many of them actually, you know, like it, it's interesting that they, they grow this year. Are they, are they the people who are really bad at surfing who just end up getting dumped all the time? Like how does that connect with, you know, the free diving and, and Indigenous um, people having, having more of that? Because it seems, oh, you know, what's the advantage? I mean, I haven't seen a study that links it to ability of surfing, but they have shown <laughs> that um, both recreational and professional surfers have this bone growing um, in around 30 to 80% of those recreational and professional surfers. And they have also found that the occurrence mm. is um, proportional to the length of time that people spend in water um, and even the cold temperature of water. So it tends to be much more common in protecting us from cold water environments. Wow. It's, um, it's fascinating how, you know, to me, whenever I hear about some sort of evolutionary thing, my question is always, what is the advantage? You know, what, what causes us to have this as an advantage? And if we don't all have it, why is that? You know, why why do we lose? You know, why is it something that we sort of have to have uh, external sim- stimuli to you know grow back? Yeah, you because know, that that's that's interesting. And I can imagine you know in certain animals where you have dogs and so forth that will grow a different coat depending on the season and things like that. But humans in the ear and water—it's like it's that's really unusual stuff. Yeah, I know. Absolutely. But it's, it's in terms of, I mean, I think it's crazy that we kind of grow this, like we're not born with it, we adapt. Um, But it is pretty cool to think that it's matched by a lot of other semi-aquatic animals as well, like hippos, platypus, the hooded seal. They all have their own biological way of narrowing their ear canal to protect their eardrum Mm. from, um, from water entering or from high pressure environments. And even the hooded seal has, um, has, exostoses themselves so that they've got a really similar thing happening in their ear to what humans have yeah i haven't really looked into it but i know that we have you know our eyesight capabilities are extraordinary and our ability for us to reshape the lens in our eyes to focus allows us to see very clearly underwater whereas a lot of aquatic animals something like a crayfish for example would not be able to see out of water there's many animals that can't see out of water because of the different um refractive index of water versus air but we're very good at making those adjustments which is cool thanks so much steph that's really fascinating stuff it'll be one of those things to watch a bit like you know took a while for plate tectonics to take on on some sort of solid form as well but we got there eventually after about 50 years um and you know now everyone's like yeah of course so you know maybe one day we'll have more respect for our aquatic background very cool stuff thank you Well, folks, we're almost out of time. Dr. Jen, you've brought in quite a crew of four today. It's been fantastic. We had a bit of a break today from having, um, you know, all our random guests that we've had all year and had your team in. You must be pretty proud of them. 
I am so proud, Shane. If you've been watching, I've just been sitting here with my audio off so I could, you know, didn't inadvertently interrupt you by going, yeah, yeah, that was great. <laughs> I've just, yeah, been sitting here with a smile on my face feeling very proud of, our, of, of this wonderful team. So well done, guys. And if any of our regular uh, co-hosts are listening, I'd be feeling a bit nervous, Shane, you know. Yeah, they'd be a bit nervous. quality show. Yeah, no, they get they get a bit. Well, this happens every year, you know. They 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 ask for a pay rise. I always say I'll I'll double their pay, you know, double of being a volunteer, still being a volunteer. But they, yeah, it makes them feel good for a few seconds when they hear it, you know. So, anyway, Jen, thanks so much for organising this, and, and team uh, Leela, Wayne, Steph, and Kat, thanks so much for being on the show. We really appreciate it. You did a spectacular do- job, and it's it's great to see just how um, important training in science communication can be in terms of uh, you know talking science in a way that everyone can understand. So congrats on the great show and thanks so much. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.